We're in this section of Proverbs where uh, we're looking at what does it mean or what does it look like for wisdom to be applied in our various, the various areas of our lives. So we've looked at our words. We've looked last week at anger. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at friendships. What does it look like to steward friendships? And there's a, several different Proverbs we're looking at, so I'd encourage you to pull out your sermon guide uh, and read along as we work through these Proverbs. Proverbs 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. 17.17, 17. a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 18.24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 2520, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. 276, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. 2717, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. The New York Times recently featured an article uh, that was written about what they called the confusion of friendship in our culture. And there was a professor that was quoted in the article. His name's Alexander uh, Nihamis, professor uh, of philosophy at Princeton. And he, he said this in the article. Ask people to define friendship even experts who research friendship, and you'll get an uncomfortable silence followed by an um. Friendship is difficult to describe, he says. It's easier to say what friendship is not, and foremost, it is not instrumental. It is not a means to obtain higher status, wrangle an invitation to someone's vacation home, or simply escape your own boredom. Rather, he said, friendship is more like beauty or art, which is appreciated for its own sake. Interesting, they quoted this professor, uh, and he, he wrote a 300-page book on what friendship is. Now, what's fascinating is it took 300 pages. <laughs> but what's even more fascinating is, is that someone would take the time to write a book like that about something that we might just kind of scratch our heads at or say, yeah, that's something we got to figure out. But the reason why it's fascinating is because friendship is not just something that we as a culture have invented or that we have made to, to help us get through life. No, friendship is relationship, and relationship is at the, the very heart of who God is. God is a relational God. He's a personal God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit existed from eternity past. And so a God who is relational then creates mankind in his image to be relational. And so the question of what is friendship, what characterizes true friendship is a very important question because it's at the very heart of who a relational God is. And so we asked that question this morning. What, what is friendship? More specifically, what characterizes True friendship, as God would define it. 
And we're going to look at a friend forgives, a friend empathizes, and a friend speaks loving truth. Now, let's start with a friend forgives. Look at Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Now, there's two levels here I want to speak to this Proverbs about. I want to speak on the individual level or the interpersonal level, and then on the communal level. Let's start with the individual level, okay? At the core of this proverb is an offense, and any conversation about forgiveness starts with an offense, right? Somebody who's offended you, somebody who has hurt you. The question is, what do you do with the pain that that causes? You've been hurt, you've been offended. Everyone here knows what that, that feels like. And there's a deep pain, and you do something with that pain. And Proverbs 17, 9 says there's two options. There's two things you'll do. You either cover the offense, or it says you repeat a matter. Now, Proverbs are written oftentimes in parallelism, meaning that it's in parallel. So covers an offense, the parallel to that is repeat a matter. In other words, repeat an offense. You've got two choices when you've been offended or hurt. You cover the offense or you repeat the offense. Now, what does it mean to repeat an offense? Repeating an offense means that you literally repeat that person's failure over and over and over either in your mind or to other people. Now, when you, when you repeat an offense over and over in your mind, you, you know what that is. You can't let go of it. You wake up thinking about it. You go to bed thinking about it. Right? It begins to control you. How that person offended you begins to control you, and you repeat it over and over. Now, if you've seen the movie Groundhog Day right, with Bill Murray, he's a weatherman, and he wakes up to the same day over and over in that movie. That's what happens with repeating an offense. You wake up and you're thinking about it. You go to bed and you're thinking about it, right? And what happens is then, usually you, you, you start to distance yourself from that person or you give them the silent treatment uh, or you, you crucify them in your heart. All ways that we can passive aggressively take that pain and inflict it back on the person. Or you repeat the offense over and over to someone else. Anybody that will give you a listening ear you tell how badly you've been hurt, right? It's, it's called gossip. That's what gossip is. You repeat an offense from somebody over and over to everyone else around you, right? To try to deal with the pain that you've got inside and you malign their character, you smear their name, and so you, you inflict pain back on them through gossip or through slander. So you either repeat an offense. The second option, the much better option we're gonna explore here is you cover an offense. Now, what does that mean to cover an offense that somebody has inflicted upon you? It literally means to cover it so that you can't see it, so that you can't repeat it, so that you can't continually act upon it. You, you cover that offense. We, in our house, in our home, uh, we have a specific toy that we have to remove from sight so that it's not used uh, to offend another person, another child in our home, or used as a bludgeon on the other child. We have to remove it. We have to get it out of sight. That's what it means to cover an offense. I I'll use a more, bear with me here, a more morbid and graphic example, but I think it, it speaks to what it means to cover an offense or to draw a veil over it. If you've been on a, in an interstate and you pass by an awful accident, if you've passed by and you either see the rescue workers pulling the sheet over a body or you see a body that has a sheet over it, right? 
to protect that person that's died, their dignity, right? The sheet is pulled over, right? To cover an offense literally means you, you pull the sheet over and lay it to rest. That you pull it over, you lay it to rest. Ken Sandy, uh, in his book, The Peacemaker, he says a decision to forgive involves four promises. Number one, I will not dwell on this offense. I will not repeat it over and over in my mind and heart. Number two, I will not bring this offense up again and use it against you. I won't repeat your failure to you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this offense. I will not repeat it over and over to other people. And number four, I will not let this offense hinder our personal relationship. So all of these promises flow out of covering an offense. Now you say, great, easy, right? No, a lot easier said than done. Where do you get the power to do this? Where do you get the power to cover someone's offense and not repeat it over and over and over? Jesus speaks to this and when he speaks to this, what I want you to see is that the absolute foundation to you being able to cover an offense is the friendship of Christ. Is the friendship of Christ and, and his covering of your offense. Look at uh, John chapter 15. John 15, verses 12 to 15. Listen to what Jesus says here. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For I have heard from my father, and what I've heard from my father I have made known to you. And what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I lay down my life for you, my friends. And I'm calling you now to lay your life down for your friends. Now you say, what does this have to, what does laying your life down for someone or what does Jesus laying his life down have to do with covering an offense? In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwelt. And the Ark of the Covenant was a, a box. And in the box was the, the broken Ten Commandments of God's people. They're failures. And on the lid of the box, it was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat or the atonement cover was the cherubim, representing God and his holiness and his majesty looking over this. And once a year, the, the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on top of this atonement cover signifying that there would be no forgiveness of sin, no covering of sin without the shedding of blood. And that was pointing forward to the coming of Christ. Romans 3.25, God says that he offered up Jesus as a propitiation for our sin. That word propitiation in the Greek is the same word used in the Greek translation of Exodus 25 for atonement cover or mercy seat. Literally what that means is that Jesus Christ is the atonement cover. He's the mercy seat. He's the one that literally laid his body down over top of the broken Ten Commandments, our failures and our sin, 
and endured on his back the wrath of God, absorbed the wrath of God so that it would not come to us. He covered, he covered our sin. Years ago, uh, in, in Washington State, on Mount Rainier, there was a, a man, a father, who took his two children out to hike. 12-year-old daughter, 11-year-old son. And they go out, and he was teaching them the joys of hiking. It was Memorial Day weekend. And while they were out hiking, this horrendous storm kicked up. Uh, a hurricane, tropical storm force winds, blinding uh, sheets of ice and snow. They couldn't move any farther. And so this father took his aluminum mess kit and he dug a trench in the ground to put them in to, and put a tarp over to, to hold out on the storm. He dug the trench, he gets in there with his kids and puts the tarp over top, but the wind kept blowing the tarp off. And so what he did is he got out, he put the tarp down over his two children in the trench and he laid over the trench to keep the tarp down. Two days later, rescue workers come to try to find this this father and two children. And they see in the distance a backpack protruding, just barely protruding from the snow. And they dig it up. And what they find is this father's frozen dead body over this tarp and underneath the tarp, two children alive and well. He covered them. He absorbed the wrath of this storm to cover his children. That's what Jesus has done for you to cover your offense, to cover your rebellion, to cover your sin. He has laid his body out to absorb the wrath of God so that you don't have to. Can I just pause for a second? Let that sink in. And now Jesus says, I want you to go do the same for one another. I want you to go lay your body down and cover one another's offenses, not repeat them over and over, that you would forgive. And I'll tell you this, that if you have truly forgiven someone, if you've experienced truly forgiving someone for an offense they committed against you, serious offense, then you know that forgiveness is like laying your body down. It is painful. It is suffering to not repeat that offense over and over. Every part of your flesh says, I want to repeat it over and over, and I want to repeat it to everybody. And forgiveness says, no, you absorb that pain and it's done. That's painful. It feels like death. That's what Jesus means when he says, lay down your life for your friends. Now, let me just speak briefly. That's on the individual or interpersonal level when someone has hurt you. Let me speak on the communal level for a second. What does this say about a community, a church, and how we handle one another's sin and failures? Notice what it says. He who repeats a matter, repeats an offense, separates close friends. That when you, when you gossip or when you repeat someone's failure to other people, that it causes division, that it separates people. Here's the fundamental question that you have to ask yourself. Do you look for people's flaws and seek to highlight them? Or do you look for people's successes and their good and seek to highlight them? Scott Sauls in his book, Befriend, 
he, he writes about his time in New York City at Redeemer Presbyterian Church with Tim Keller. Listen to what he says. He says, Tim Keller is the best example I've ever seen of someone who consistently covers with the gospel. Never once did I see Tim tearing another person down to their face on the internet or through gossip. Instead, he seemed to assume the good in people. He talked about how being forgiven and affirmed by Jesus frees us for this, for, quote, catching people doing good instead of looking for things to criticize or be offended by. Even when someone had done wrong or been in error, Tim would respond with humble restraint and self-reflection instead of venting negativity and criticism. As the grace of God does, he covered people's flaws and sins. Sometimes he covered my flaws and sins. He did this because that's what grace does. It reminds us that in Jesus, we are shielded and protected from the worst things about ourselves. Because Jesus shields us like this, we should of all people be zealous to restore reputations versus destroying reputations, to protect a good name versus calling someone a name, to shut down gossip versus feeding gossip, to restore broken relationships versus begrudging broken people. So a true friend forgives, covers an offense. Second, a true friend empathizes. Let me read the next three verses in Proverbs that we're going to unpack here and then explain them briefly. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 1824, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And 2520, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. You see, these, these first two proverbs contrast a, a friend to a family member, like a brother. And what do they say? The friend loves at all times. The brother's born for adversity. It means this, that a friend is there in the good and the bad. That a friend is there at all times. A brother or a family member is just there when adversity hits. I believe what, the, what, the, uh, what Solomon's trying to say here is that uh, a family member can just act as a safety net. But a friend is much more than a safety net. A friend enters in. A friend understands and shares another's feelings. A friend is there at all times. It's Romans 12, 15, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse three, listen to this. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Right? Remember those in prison, those who are hurting, as though you're hurting with them. That's, what's, that's what empathy is. It's understanding, entering in, sharing the feeling of. And the reason that Hebrews gives for this is that you're a part of one body. You're a part of one body. In our Western culture, we are a bunch of individuals. God makes it very clear that a church, a local church, is one body. It's the body of Christ. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 12. You belong to one another. And therefore, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member's honored, all rejoice together. 
Entering in. Now, Proverbs 25, 20, the last of these three Proverbs, actually tells you how not to do this, okay? This this 25, 20 says, here's how not to empathize or enter in. You see what it says, right? It says, "Don't, don't be that person that sings songs to a heavy heart because it can inflict pain. It's like taking off their coat on a cold day The vinegar on soda, soda was a mineral used in the preparation of soap. Soap's used to rub on the body. What it means is this, it's like vinegar on a wound. It's painful. Uh, I had a a girlfriend briefly in high school whose name was Lana. And how many years has it been? Long time. I still remember Lana. Here's why. Every time that we were together, I think it was just about every time, she would say, if it, and she would say this with a, with a big smile on her face, almost kind of bouncing up and down, just chipper as can be. She'd say, if it doesn't kill you, it can only help you. I mean, I could, have, I could have snapped my leg on a Friday night football game, been taken to the hospital, writhing in a hospital bed, and I envisioned she would have come in, hopping, smiling, and saying, if it doesn't kill you, Keith, it can only help you. Not helpful. <laughs> You, now listen, you know that person. Maybe you've been that where everything is turned positive. Now there's a healthy optimism. But where everything is just is, is spun positively. There's no room for weeping. And that person doesn't know how to weep with you. All they know how to do is just be chipper. That's what the Proverbs is talking about here. A friend. A true friend is sensitive to know when to rejoice with you and when to weep with you. Why? Because a true friend empathizes, meaning when you're in pain, they own your pain and respond accordingly. When you rejoice, they they own your joy and respond accordingly. Amy Carmichael, she was a missionary in India for many years. And she suffered tremendously on the mission field. She wrote these words. I have noticed that when one who has not suffered draws near to one in pain, there is rarely much power to help. I have wondered if it can be the same in the sphere of prayer. Does pain accepted and endured give some quality that would otherwise be lacking in prayer? What if every stroke of pain or hour of weariness or loneliness or any other trial of flesh or spirit could carry us a pulse beat nearer some other life, some life for which the ministry of prayer is needed? Would it not be worthwhile to suffer? 10,000 times, yes. And surely it must be so for the further we are drawn into the fellowship of Calvary with our dear Lord the more tender we are towards others. The more we can empathize and enter in. God never wastes his children's pain. The ability to do this, the ability to empathize, to sympathize, to enter into somebody's situation and feel what they're feeling requires that you have the friendship of Christ. Because what Jesus asked you to do, and he asked his followers, I want you to love as I did. 
I want you to enter in. I want you to empathize. What Jesus asked you to do is exactly what he's done for you. He doesn't ask you to do anything that he has not done for you. Listen to how it's, how it's worded in Hebrews chapter two about what Christ has done for you. Hebrews 2, 16 to 18. For surely it is not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. You hear that? Because Jesus Christ, he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but what one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Think about it this way. When you get hurt, when you get sick, when something happens in your life that's a significant trial, what's the first thing you, you tend to do? You tend to think, is there somebody else who has experienced this? Because I want to call them. And I want to see how they handled this. And I want to get advice. Right? I want to get counsel. When I herniated the disc in my back and I had horrific sciatic pain down my left leg, who did I call? Kendall Spencer, who's an elder here, who had a herniated disc and sciatic pain and had surgery to fix it. Ray Treadwell, who used to go here, has moved north a little bit since. He had sciatic pain uh, down his leg, herniated disc, got surgery. I called them both. Why? Because I knew they would understand what I was going through that they could enter in and they could feel what I was feeling and give me good earnest and, and wise counsel. What Hebrews 2 and 4 says is this, that Jesus Christ put on flesh and that he therefore understands your weakness and empathizes, sympathizes. He understands your weakness. He understands your brokenness. He understands your pain. He understands every temptation you go through. And because of that, you can. And as Hebrews says, turn to him boldly, confidently to receive mercy and to receive help in your time of need. So a true friend forgives, covers an offense. A true friend empathizes. A true friend understands and shares another's feelings, shares your feelings, because that's what the friendship of Christ is. And then third, a friend speaks loving truth. Get Proverbs 27. Three verses out of Proverbs 27. Verse six, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Verse nine, oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Verse 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. A good friend, a true friend, doesn't tell you what you want to hear. A good friend and a true friend tells you what you need to hear. Honest confrontation, honest feedback, honest counsel, right? Uh, imagine that you take your car uh, for a routine checkup at the mechanic. And the mechanic, after you, when you go to pick it up, the mechanic says, your car is in great shape there must be an automotive genius taking care of your car. 
Later that day, your brakes go out. You almost get in an accident, you almost die. And you learn that your, your brake fluid was, it was empty. And you go back to this mechanic and you say, why didn't you tell me? The mechanic says, well, I, I, I just didn't want to upset you. And I, I just, we want to make this place a loving and accepting environment. You'd say, you'd be furious. I want the truth, right? Or let's say you go to the doctor's office for a routine checkup. And you leave the doctor's office and the, and the doctor says, you are in great shape. You, have, you are a magnificent physical specimen. You're an Olympian. Later that day, you're climbing the stairs and your heart gives out. You get to the hospital and you realize that your arteries were completely clogged. You go back to that doctor and you say, Doc, why don't you tell me? Well, I just didn't want to hurt your feelings. And, 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 I, and I've learned that when I do that, it's bad for business. People don't come back. So we want to make this place a loving and accepting environment. You'd, you'd be furious. You'd say, I want the truth. Listen, deep down, although you're scared of it, everybody's scared of the truth when it comes to confrontation. Deep down, you want it. Deep down, you want it. Because deep down, if you're in Christ and the Spirit's in you, you want to grow. You want to be transformed. You want truth. In fact, if you're here and you're in Christ, meaning you've trusted Jesus Christ, guess what? You took a massive amount of criticism to become a Christian. Massive amount. God said, you're a sinner. You're a rebel. You live for yourself. You're conceited. You're selfish. And you deserve death. And you said... Yes, I am. And I turn to you, Jesus. You can take criticism. And, I, and let me just say, this is coming, when I say this, this is coming from a man who struggles deeply with this, okay? I am preaching to myself probably more than I'm preaching to you right now. You can take criticism. Deep down, you want it because you want to grow and you want to be transformed. Your friendship with Christ has to be secure to receive criticism or rebuke. And I want you to see in all three of these, whether it's how, being able to forgive, being able to empathize, being able now to speak loving truth, your friendship with Christ has to be secure to be able to speak loving truth to someone or to be willing to receive it. There's a great picture of this in, in Acts chapter nine when, when Paul is converted. The apostle Paul, who was Saul, gets converted on the Damascus road. He is headed to Damascus to murder and persecute Christians. And a sudden light shones around him, blinds him, and Jesus says to him, Saul, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. <laughs> Yes, amen. Jesus says, Saul, you are persecuting me. He calls him out for his sin and his rebellion. And then Jesus says to Ananias, who he eventually sends to Paul, who's blinded, he says to Ananias, go for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. He says, I have a plan for this man. And then a little bit later, 
right? Ananias finally goes and he says to Saul, Saul, Jesus sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's conversion is a template of all conversions. Details look different, but the fundamental parts of that conversion are there in every conversion. You're a sinner and a rebel, but I have a plan for you in the redemption of my world. And I'm gonna fill you with my Holy Spirit and rebuild you and transform you to be an agent of redemption in my world. In other words, loving rebuke with a vision for restoration. When you rebuke somebody or you, uh, you, you come to a close friend to, to confront them on some issue in their life, sin in their life, you don't do it with the rebuke or the criticism being the end. You look past that to the potential in that person's life. The vision of God restoring them and, and, and changing them. And so there's always this confrontation that has vision of restoration in the future. It's exactly what happened in, in Paul's conversion. Now, why don't we do this? Why don't we do it? Because we fear rejection. No different than Ananias. I, I, I kept out that part in the Paul's conversion story. When Jesus says to Ananias, hey, Ananias, I want you to go uh, to Saul. He, he's over in that place. Ananias says, oh yeah, no, no big deal. Sure. No, Ananias goes, Jesus, you're crazy. <laughs> this man's been murdering Christians and you're sending me to him? Are you sending me to death? Right? He, he, Ananias was scared to death to go confront Paul. You your ability to confront a friend or to confront someone with loving truth hinges on your security in Christ because you have to be willing to be rejected. You realize that? When you go and take the risk of lovingly confronting someone, you have to be willing to be rejected. You have to care more about that person's growth than your own need for approval or acceptance which means you have to be willing to be rejected because you know that your loyal friend Jesus will never reject you. That is the only foundation out of which you can consistently and with rhythm in your life say hard things to people in love as if you're rooted deeply in Jesus as your loyal friend. You know, Jesus' disciples had similar fears, especially as he was starting to move to the cross and, and leave the fears of his disciples and the rejection, even in the book of Acts, when they're huddled in a room, I mean, they're, they're scared to death. I love how the, uh, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's a great children's Bible, summarizes Jesus' message to his disciples and to their fear. And what I want you to hear in this just summary of what Jesus says to his disciples is that for you to be able to forgive, for you to be able to empathize, for you to be able to speak loving truths, your relationship with Christ and your friendship with Christ has to be secure. Listen to how it summarizes Jesus' message. This is how God will rescue the whole world, Jesus says. My life will break and God's broken world will mend. My heart will tear apart and your hearts will heal. I won't be with you long. You are going to be very sad, but God's helper will come. And then you'll be filled up with a forever happiness that won't ever leave. So don't be afraid. You are my friends and I love you. Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you for laying your life down for us. Thank you for covering our sin. Thank you for absorbing the wrath of God so that all that is left for us is grace. Father, we pray out of that that deep friendship with your son, Jesus, that we would be a people who practice friendship as you've designed it. That we would practice relationship as you've designed it. That we would be quick to forgive and to cover an offense as a community. That we would would be quick to, to point out the good in people, not to criticize. Father, make us a people that empathize, that understand and, and share the feelings of another, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. And Father, give us the courage out of our friendship with Christ to speak loving truth, to see the potential in people's lives and to be willing to even be rejected to see that potential reached by a word of confrontation that is delivered in love because ultimately we're secure, Jesus, in you and that you will not reject us. Father, as we close in worship, would you, by your spirit, remind us of the friendship that we have in your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.